0: Let us start with Parsha's Kiseite, right? This is a a big Parsha, a lot to cover, especially in the beginning. Lots of exciting, controversial stuff. So um let us focus on that. Um, Herman, uh, do you have do you have the the text in front of you? Yeah, okay. okay. So if you don't mind starting for us. <clears throat> so just if you don't mind reading through the section about you and then we'll deal with that and then we'll move on to Ben Saram. Is it what what verse? So start from uh, verse 10 in the beginning of the of the of the parsha. Okay. <clears throat> when
1: oh hold on. When you wage war against your enemies, God will give you victory over them so that you will take captives. If you see a beautiful woman among the prisoners and desire her, you may take her as a wife. In such a case, when you bring her home, she must shave off her head and let her fingernails grow. She must take off her captive's garb and remain in your house a full month, mourning for her father and mother. Only then you may be intimate with her and possess her, making her your wife. If you do not desire her, however, you must send her away free. Since you have had your way with her, you may not sell her for cash or keep her as a servant. This is the law when a man has two wives, one whom he loves and one whom he dislikes. And both the loved and unloved wives have sons, but the firstborn is that of the unloved one. On the day that this man wills his property to his sons, he must not give the son of the beloved wife's birthright preference over the firstborn, who is the son of the unloved wife. Even if the firstborn is the son of the hated wife, the father must recognize him so as to give him a double portion of all his property. Since this son is the first of his father's manhood, the birthright is legally his.
0: Okay, let's pause over here. So we cover over here the very difficult parsha of the Yefas Torah when the Jewish army goes out to war and they're successful and they capture captives and the one of the soldiers sees a beautiful woman. He wants to marry her, and then the Torah gives a whole procedure how this is supposed to be done. The there's a debate over here between the opinion of Rashi and Tosfis, and they argue with uh, the Rambam and the Ramban about is when when it says that the Kh shall you take her for yourself for a wife does it mean that he 's allowed to be intimate with her one time on the on the battlefield or in the camp even before she becomes a convert, or is it just that he's allowed to uh, Force her to become a convert, and even though we and and even though we know that generally speaking, with the laws of conversion, conversion against someone's will doesn't work over here. And this is a similar procedure where we see by buying non-Jewish slaves, even a forcible conversion could work. So this is a debate between the Ramban and Rashi, or uh, so it's not Rashi. Over here, it's Rashi and the Talmud, and Tosfos over there also agrees with Rashi that the only per, the only uh, permissibility over here is that that they are allowed to force her to convert. Uh, the the other thing, the but the sorry, the Rambam and the Ramban write, however, that they are allowed to be intimate. The soldier is uh, allowed to be intimate with her even before she becomes Jewish on the battlefield. However, the Rambam writes that you take her for you the same way we know that marriage is not allowed to be against the will of the woman so too he is not allowed to rape her he's only allowed to be intimate with her if she uh, if she agrees there's a for the rashi brings the famous madrash and then it's a it's a gemara that torah right that the the motivation the idea behind uh, Yifas Torah is that the Torah was kind of addressing the Yetzirah the, the and plainly understood it's that, you know, a person is out there, you know, he's so overcome with desire that if the Torah does not allow this, he will do it anyways and it will be in sin. So therefore, the Torah has to make some sort of um, concession to human nature, to temptation in order to, you know, create some way for this person to do it, which minimizes sin or, you know, allows him to do it without sin. And this is something which is very problematic for us on, in kind of many ways. Number one, right, why specifically for this Avera? There are so many other temptations and trials and you know taivos that we have that we feel are almost impossible to overcome and yet the torah says right no 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 is no right there are loads of prohibitions that we feel almost go completely against human nature and yet the torah demands that we behave in a certain way that we feel is almost is almost impossible to deal with so why specifically in this case does the Torah seem to uh, provide a uh, allowance for it? In addition, this Sfas asks a very simple question. He says, "It says Lo Torah Ella The Torah is talking against, as a way of combating the Sahara. And he says, "This isn't combating the Sahara, This is giving in to the Sahara, Right? This is you know allowing a person." To succumb to the Yatesahara.
2: Whose opinion so what, is
0: that? So this is the question of the uh, sorry, well which part. Where's where does this uh Torah come from or where does this question come from? Is
2: that comment?
0: Oh, the Lod Sorry, you 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 got muted. Uh Lodibratora? low Torah is a statement in the Talmud. Um and the question is being asked by these Fasanas, who is the Rebbe. And the other thing he points out, and, and the Satmar Rebbe also, Rabbi Yevish points this out, he says, this leniency only exists in a Melchemist Rishos. In one of the wars where they go out, um, you know, it's one of the wars to kind of expound the boundaries of Eretz Yisrael, it's a voluntary war. It's not a war which is for self-defense or one of the wars against the seven nations, which are a Melchemist Mitzvah. Because it says, ki se when they go out, implying that this leniency only works in a uh, voluntary war. And the question is, why should this be true? Okay, we know that when they go to war against the seven nations, then you know you are not allowed to marry a member of the seven nations, so therefore this leniency can apply there. But there are other smiths. mitzvah. there's a war of self-defense. Why can't this allowance also apply to a milchemist mitzvah? And if you think about it, they say, logically, it should apply even more to a melchemes mitzvah than to a melchemes roshos. Why? For two reasons. Number one, in a melchemes mitzvah, these people were forced to go out to battle, right? These are not necessarily uh, professional soldiers, not people who are very uh, well-trained. These are simple people, right? It says that you take even a bride from under her chuppah to go fight a melchemes mitzvah. Everybody has to go. To a milchamahs mitzvah, so therefore you would think that the weak people, the people who are more likely to succumb to the pressures of the Sahara would be much more prevalent in a Milchames mitzvah. So therefore, the the and also and also they're forced to be there; they have to be there. So they're put in this situation in a way where they have much less uh, liberty to avoid it. Therefore, it should definitely be that these people. Should be allowed to have this leniency of your fast in a mitzvah. However, this is not the case. It's only true in a Melchemes Roshos. The other problem is, is that who a goes what? to, it, I'm sorry?
2: Melchemes, what? what was the second kind a, of
0: Yeah uh, A uh, Melchemes Roshos. Roshos means that, you know, it literally translates as permission, but it's, it's a voluntary war. It's the type of war where they have to get permission from the king has to be led by the king and the Urim Batumim and the Jewish court. And it's a war where they just go out to, let's say, expound the boundaries of Israel or if there is a threat, but it's not a immediate threat, then according to many opinions, this is a Mechamas Roshos. So all these cases are, um, uh, are considered to be voluntary war. And if you recall from last week's Parsha, who goes out to a voluntary war? Only the most righteous of the righteous go out. Um, I am being visited. Hello, Jim. You want to sit and listen? Okay, we have to be quiet. Okay. So only so only the most righteous people go out to a Milchamas mitzvah. The if you recall, the judge and the and the cohen come out and they ask who has sinned, and the commentaries explain what sin are they referring to. They're referring to speaking during davening. Like the most kind of, you know, they, the expectation from the soldiers who are going to fight a Melchemist Roshas is that these are people who are completely righteous. Yet it is for them that we have to talk about this, this leniency of, sorry, of, uh, um, uh, of right? You would think that these people are not going to have the, this problem. These are the most righteous people. If anything, you should have it for 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 the weaker people. The other problem over here is, is that it says, right, and as we're as we're gonna see the 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 uh, the sequence over here, that you marry a fastor, then this leads to uh, the case of the uh Acha Sahuva of Acha right? That you're gonna end up not liking her. And then there's gonna be the question about respecting her children. Then because you don't treat her well and you don't treat her children properly, her son becomes a bensoromara. And you know, all because, and then it says later that even you know, then right the parsha immediately after Bensoromara is about the person who goes and serves idols, I believe, or some other sin. Right. Um, let me just double check what it is, right? So it goes. Um, yeah, right. It talks about it, t- right, it, t- it, talks about the case where somebody has the uh, capital offense and hanging him on a tree. So they so the commentaries explain that this is all one sequence of events. You go, you marry a fast tohar, it doesn't work out well, the relationship does not really kind of work out. Then, you know, because of that, there's issues with chinuch, issues with, with raising the children. You end up with a bensal mora. So bensal mora actually, as we're going to see, according to many opinions, never even happens. But whatever it is, the guy's going to end up becoming somebody who, you know, grows up to being some, you know, person who gets the, the, the death penalty. And the Gemara says from here, we see avera, goraris, avera that one sin causes another sin that because you kind of fell in the beginning, there's this whole sequence of events. So the question is, I mean, Avera, gorera Avera, is something that we say by sins, right? That when you do a sin, it causes another sin. But Yefas Torah is not a sin. He did everything he was supposed to do. The Torah allowed him. So why does it kind of seems like this, you know, very strange, you know, story here that we say you can't you can't uh, control yourself to the extent that the Torah is is gonna let it, but it's still gonna ruin your life, it's still gonna be considered a naverah, right? All all these terrible things. The other question is is that. There, according to the opinion of Rashi and Toastfus there is no avera here according to the Rambam and the Ramban that he's allowed to sleep with her uh, before she becomes Jewish there is some Avara right because he's because he's being intimate with somebody who's not Jewish and uh, they aren't married but according to Rashi and Toastfus that they aren't even going to be intimate until after she becomes a Jew and they're married and the whole kind of hiddish of the Torah the whole allowance of the Torah over here is that she can become a convert against her will, but he's not doing any aver So there should be no Avera Goreras Aveira. He didn't do anything, anything, anything halakhically wrong. So there's a lot of different explanations, a lot of discussions over here about these various things, but there's one very beautiful idea which the uh Fasema says. And he says when it says Dibra Torah he's saying. What the Gemara is meaning to tell us is not that the Torah allowed it because you couldn't handle yourself. He says Dibra Torah, the Torah set up the story and everything as a cautionary tale against the Yetzirah. And the cautionary tale is as follows: You have a temptation at time A, and you think, wow. If only I will be, a, if, if, if only, you know, if only God was nicer, if only things were better, if only God was more merciful, wasn't as neurotic, this would be amazing, right? I could be an absolutely righteous Jew if the only midst, if the only Iver that didn't exist was kosher. If I would be allowed to eat whatever I want, everything else in Judaism would be very easy for me can't right every single everything else everything else in judaism would be extremely easy for me right um if then you know the the um i would be a, a great jew if only there was no requirement for me to dress a certain way or behave a certain way or shabbos shabbos is my hard one or this havera or this thing if i had everything else everything would be great so the Torah gave you, in this one area, a cautionary tale. Look at this guy. He's on the battlefield. He, cons- he is the most righteous person, and he has done, he's engaged in introspection. He, you know, his conscience is clear. He went to war, his conscience is clear. He is not only righteous, he even thinks of himself as righteous. And now on the battlefield, he's faced with temptation. And he says to himself, wow, if only I didn't have this challenge, I would be perfect. The Torah is kind of asking one step too far for me. Look at me. I'm not a regular guy. I'm a tzaddik. I don't talk during davening. I do everything else correctly. I'm up to here. Look how impossible. Look how, look how this is. If a Torah only let me do this, then I can be pure and complete. And the Torah says, okay, fine. You think so? I'll figure out a mechanism for you to be able to engage in your temptation. Yeah, it won't be, you know, it'll be permissible halakhically, but we all know it's the wrong thing to do. Yeah? It's going to be, you know, the the uh, and Cutler writes, he says, Right, he's talking over there uh, about the uh, soro mara, but he says one of, the, one of the themes that we see in this Parsha is that when it talks about the mitzvah of Kidoshim tiyu, that you should be holy and you should avoid kind of engaging in behavior that is a novel versus Torah that is um, kind of hedonism which, why, which the Torah allows and this brings to kind of all sorts of terrible consequences, he says, this is something which, 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 which we think is only for the righteous people. Let me focus on halacha, and, you know, everything else, right? And, you know, avoiding permissible things, that's not on my level. Yet, as we're going to see with the, ben Sarumar, with the Ben Sarumar, this is going to be what he's going to be judged for. But over here, you have this righteous person who is saying, listen, this is halakhli permitted, the Torah gives me a loophole, but it's really a noose to hang myself with. Because I know this is the wrong thing to do, but I'm so righteous, it's just this once, it's just little thing, what could be so bad? And he doesn't. And then the chain of events becomes very clear. Right? It's all very understandable to us. Right? He goes to war. He finds this beautiful woman. He brings her home. He's in kind of far intoxicated. We we all kind of know how you know people who fall prey to temptation have affairs. All these different things. How these things end? Comes home to his regular wife and his family, and his kids. And he brings home this wife. How is that gonna go over? Then you know, kind of the excitement of battle. Everything fades away. And he's she is not from his culture. They don't really have anything in common. She, she was forced into this situation, so you can imagine that there's probably not right, not a, um, uh, a lot of love lost over there. And all of a sudden, he's stuck with this wife that is, you know, causing problems with his other wife and with his family. Is somebody who she is, you know, he basically put himself in a really unpleasant situation. So he starts hating her and he's resentful and he's nasty to her and her kids see that. Well, he didn't have kids uh, because you know the Bechar is coming uh, from her, but he goes and then all of a sudden this very predictable chain of events happens. And the Torah says, the tora Torah says, you think that by other things this is not going to happen? This is the consequence of temptation. The villainy of the Yetsahara is that when you fall prey to temptation, you're never going to be happy afterwards. The Yitzhahara does not let you enjoy it. That's not what he does. It says the Yitzhahara is Nikrasone. He's called your enemy because not only does he destroy your life in the world, the destroys your life in this world as well. That when you sin, when you fall, the Yitzhahara almost always refuses to let you to, uh, to enjoy it unless he thinks there's a way to make you fall even further. And therefore, Lodibra Torah Yitzhara, read the story of Yefas Torah. This is a cautionary tale. This is a tale of the righteous person of the tzaddik Shechata, of the righteous person who thought that I can do everything except for this. And, and the Torah says, okay, and he falls, and then he falls all way to the point where he has to end up killing killing his own son. Um, the other interesting idea over here is from a different Hasidic rabbi I saw, that he brings this, this is kind of very Hasidic, I, I, don't, I don't really understand it so well, but I figured, you know, I have to share it. So he says, He says, so this is not his idea, he's referring to the battle with the with the evil inclination. And he says that 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 what it is sorry, and he says that what it's referring to over here is that when you go to fight with the Yitzhara that uh Vishavisha Shede means he'll take a captive. How? And he says, Vishavisha is referring to Shabbos. That the whole week we have a battle with trying to deal with the Sahara. What is a tool to enable us to succeed? Shabbos. That's what he says. I don't understand it, but I figured I'll share it. Why not? Okay. Um, let's move on. So there, there is a. There is a very interesting technical question over here about Geiras. An- another
2: yeah. question. Uh, is this description of the man, you know, falling prey to temptation and bringing a beautiful woman home? Mm-hmm. Is it actually, if I'm looking at the Hebrew, is it saying it's okay or is it saying when you do this?
0: So over there, so so asking, you say, that part is all when that happens and you capture. The Lakakhtal Lakhal is saying that, so you're right, it doesn't seem to say that you, that you, that it's not telling you to do it, but it's not prohibiting it. So it's kind of saying when you take her for a wife. Now, yeah. that's, but you know, you aren't necessarily, you don't have to, and in fact, you aren't supposed to. But we see this very similar language by normal marriage, right? It says, it says um, oh my gosh, kisikach ish isha, right? When a man takes a woman, right? I'm, I'm not saying the right person. But it also kind of uses the language of when, and there's a discussion over there if kidushin is a mitzvah or not, because it's not actually commanded. But um, yeah, you're right. That, that's a good point. Mm. Okay, no. So kedushan, they say, when you get married, following the process of kedushan is a mitzvah, whatever. But but there's a there's a discussion about it because again, the language is also like when uh, when that happens. But the Torah is giving you a a a kind of way to marry her. The big question over here also is is on the Rambam and the uh, Ramban, right? That you are allowed to be intimate with her before. So over there the Torah is really allowing you to violate a halakha, right according to Rashi and Tostri, the Torah is only you know allowing this Garus Falkar this Geiris against her will and that is actually not that simple that that's just, that that's such a big deal because um, you know there there is a procedure when you capture in battle uh, that you know making people slaves it's it's uh, permitted it's part of you know you 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 could when you go to war and you capture captives, they could become slaves. And the halacha by non-Jewish slaves is that they have to endure some sort of semi-conversion. And then when they become free, they are full converts even even uh, against their will. And there's a discussion you know, how and why uh, this works. But since you are theoretically allowed to take her as a maidservant so the, and then freeing her, so the conversion itself is not really such a big deal according to Rashi and Toshis. It's really according to the Rambam and the Ramban that you're allowed to be intimate before she becomes a, a, a convert, that there is really a sin going on over here, or at least something which we know to be uh, prohibited, if you recall from Pinchas, right? That the Torah is, uh, is uh, um, allowing according to them, and therefore that is much more difficult to understand, and why does the Torah only allow it for this sin specifically? So that's much more complicated. Okay, so let's move on to uh, Bensorumura. Um, so Paul, if you don't mind reading from verse 18.
2: If a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, that will not hearken to the voice of his father. Am I muted?
0: No, no you're good, you're good.
2: And or the voice of his mother, and though they chasten him will not hearken unto them, then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of his city and unto the gate of his place. And they shall say unto the elders of his city, This is our this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He doth not hearken to our voice, he is a glutton and a drunkard, and all the men of the city shall stone him with stones that he die so shall thou put away the evil from the midst of thee, and all Israel shall hear and fear.
0: Okay, so let's pause for a second, right? So ben Sorumar, right? One of the kind of, one of the kind of more difficult passages in the Torah, right? Here you have this kid, regular rebellious teen, right? Doesn't do anything that bad. He steals, he drinks wine, right? He, you know, you know he doesn't. He doesn't uh, obey them. They nothing. Nothing we haven't seen before, right? And what happens to him? They give him skela. They kill him by stoning. Now, what's fascinating is is that you'll notice that stoning actually is actually not a probe. Is, is is a method of death that even a murderer doesn't get. Stoning is considered to be the most severe way to kill somebody. And this, and, and it's, it's for people who desecrate Shabbos or some of the other very big ones. But a murderer gets sieth, he gets killed with a sword. Yet this child who we are condemning him to death because he's Nidon al Shame Sofo, because we say that eventually he's going to kill someone, somehow the fact that he's going to eventually kill someone ends him with a penalty that's more severe than somebody who actually kills someone. The other problem is, is that we know the famous passage by Yishmael, right? That Yishmael is lying and he's, you know, he's lying weak underneath the bush where his mother dropped him. And the angels tell God, don't, right? Don't save him. And, and, and Hashem says that, no, right? We have to look at, right? Shema is called ba'ashar husham. He heard the voice of the child as the child was there and said that even though eventually his descendants are going to harm the Jewish people when they go into exile, that's not this boy right now. And therefore, right, we should we should let him live. And everyone asked, what do you mean? This boy over here still hasn't killed anybody. Bashar Husham, he doesn't uh, deserve anything. So, you know, how could we do it? The second question is, there's a famous debate in Talmud about whether or not it ever happened. Meaning to say, there are some opinions in Talmud that say that that the entire story of Ben-Sarumar is purely theoretical. The, the amount of onerous conditions that have to be fulfilled before the child could actually be executed, the mother and father have to be the same height, they have to have the same tenor of, uh, of voice, there are a lot of kind of very, very onerous conditions that have to be uh, fulfilled before you can give him the death penalty. So if the whole thing is purely theoretical, it's all things is purely theoretical. And because, so why is it here? Because there are certain lessons you can learn about the Jewish people and all these, there are a lot of very different, you know, there are, sorry, there's, there's a large amount of drash that you can uh, derive from this parsha, but practically speaking, it's theoretical. There's another opinion in the Talmud that says, "No, I sat on the grave of Aben Sura Umara. So if it sure happened, and then there is a discussion, what is the argument over here? You know, either existed or didn't, whatever. So that's the if you if you look at at the at the Satmar Reb has a very long piece trying to understand this debate. But if you say it's theoretical, it's 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 baffling why would the Torah, in the midst of a lot of practical halachos, give us this bizarre theoretical story? And it's not really very instructive, right? We know that stealing is wrong. We know that all these different things the kid did is wrong. So, but this is like, you know, overkill. I mean, we're supposed to be telling, is the purpose over here to kind of boogeyman a uh, rebellious teenager you keep doing it. I'm going to, you know, have you bring it to Bethlehem and have you stoned. I mean, what's the point of this story? You know, there was a joke going around when I was a kid always that our, our, our um, uh, principal would always say, you know, you, you were my favorite uh, uh, Bensor Omora in school, right? That, day you know, this was like, be, uh, like from a theoretical perspective, why is this, why is this necessary? I mean, why, why are these verses here? Um, so, Rebar Cutler has a, has a has a fascinating approach, and he starts off by asking. He says, "Why why does this kid get a worse penalty than a murderer? Right? Whether it's practical or theoretical, right? This kid, we're saying, need on right al shem sofo. that what's going to happen is is that eventually he's going to start robbing and killing people. So, therefore, we, we you know Tosha, yamazakai. It's better that he dies innocent and doesn't die guilty. Okay. But so why worse than a murderer? So Byron Carr has a fascinating idea. He says, what is the real, kind of the deep tragedy of the ben Umara? He says, the tragedy of the ben Umara is that he had managed to destroy his self, and his goodness to a degree that at the age of 13, we know exactly what he's going to be when he's 20. That means that he managed to destroy and bury the goodness and the potential inside of him to the extent that the Torah can testify with certainty that this guy is headed on, on this path. And he says, this is one of the greatest crimes a person could uh, commit to destroy their own potential. And therefore, he is given the worst possible penalty. And Erbaran explains, he says, this doesn't just apply to the Ben-Solomara, which is a extreme case, right, obviously, and a instructive case, but it's a, it's a, it's a lesson for all of us when we look at how we behave and what we do, how careful are we to be either living up to our potential or or, or, or or doing things that damage ourselves to a degree that over time, more and more things become possible.
2: We know that he is destroying his potential and he's the son in his father's house. Presumably he's not an independent agent, he's young. How does the so Torah
0: conclude? How, so, so it sounds like that, that from, from the way Rob Aaron is saying is that the fact that exactly this, the fact that he's growing up in his parents' home and he's being given everything he needs and, and there's a discussion in the Talmud about how, you know, the various requirements, but this is directly a kid who has parents who are taking care of him and this kid is still Zolo Vesovea. He's still stealing drinking wine and eating. This is not a question of, from like La uh, Lemiz Le about going to prison for stealing a loaf of bread. This is a spoiled, rich brat. I mean, this is the kid who doesn't do it because he needs it. He does it because he wants to. And therefore, this is a kid who has somehow managed, to. we're talking about where the kid has to be, it's only for like, two or, it's like two or three months after his uh, bar mitzvah. We're talking about a really young kid who still at that point managed to have so thoroughly rotted inside that we don't see a future for him. And so the, one, of the, one of the explanations is is that it says that when, when, when a Torah says that this is a story which can never happen, is because it says that this is a place where nobody could ever really get to. That nobody is without hope. Is that the story of Ben-Sorah is, is that we're not saying that people should be, that they're that that coming the opposite to say. The reason why we say Bashar Husham is because nobody could really be a, a uh, Ben-Sorah Because if there was somebody like that, indeed we would kill him now. But the Torah is testifying that it's impossible to happen; that there will always be some hope for no matter how bad a person may seem at one moment. There is always some hope of redemption for him. Is
2: that that's in the Torah, or is that Talmudic? Uh,
0: Which part? The, this this last thing?
2: That that he that there is always hope for redemption. So,
0: so this is how the how the how the uh, um, Sama understands it. He's, he he brings. Uh, a few midrashim about it, but he's saying that the, that the opinion of the person who says that this can never happen is that why is the Torah teaching it to us? It's to teach us that there's always hope for redemption. And in fact, he takes it even further and he brings a interesting uh, drash from the Zohar that interprets the entire story of Ben Sarimura as a conversation between the Jewish people and God, That Hashem is telling the Jewish people and if I really felt there was no hope for you, I would never promise to bring you back. But from the fact that I'm promising to bring you back, shows that, I, that you have not kind of gone to that point And that there is a, a hope for redemption for you.
2: Interesting to me, the, the Torah doesn't say, you have this rebellious son, he's impossible, he's evil. It doesn't say kill him. You, the father, should kill him. It says you should have the elders in the city judge him. Judge, judge him. Sort right. of like you might give it to a third party, so to speak.
0: Right. Step away. Well, the other, the other fascinating thing over here, by the way, it talks about also about the role of the father and mother in raising the child. Um, so, so because it says that the Bensaru Mora doesn't get uh, condemned to death unless his father and mother are the same height, the same, uh, and the Torah says is that you can't, it's a child kind of, right, it says over there, uh Yisro so, and we disciplined him, right, is that we only, the kid is only seen as not having hope, as being completely culpable, only after he was given the best possible chances. And what's considered to be the best possible chances of Chinach when both of his parents were actively involved? When both of his parents raised him, then this is a kid who had the best chance. And therefore, it really talks to this idea that, you know, we kind of allow very often raising of the children to fall heavier on one spouse than uh, another. and Or we split it where one does the discipline and one does the you know, comforting, right? And the Torah is saying, no, no, no. The best chance is where there's a real partnership, where both are on the same page, working together. The son hears the same tone from both of them, meaning there is a unified approach. The husband and wife act in concert. That is the son who has the best chance, which is interesting. Okay, so... Let's move on, you know, so, uh, if you don't mind reading, there's just two verses, 22 and 23.
1: Uh, if a man shall have committed a sin whose judgment is death, he shall be put to death and you shall hang him on a gallows. His body shall not remain for the night on the gallows. Rather, you shall surely bury him on that day for a hanging person is a curse of God and you shall not contaminate your land, which Hashem your God gives you
0: as an inheritance. Okay, so here we have, this is one of the most important sources for burial in the Torah, right? We don't actually have that many other sources. We have kind of you know, anecdotal sources about the various um, ancestors being buried, but as a commandment, we don't see anywhere else really the commandment to bury except for here. And what's fascinating is that it's saying this commandment in the context of somebody who committed a capital offense, right? somebody who either murdered or did something else terrible, even this person deserves dignity. And therefore, even though there's an obligation to hang him in order to make everybody else afraid and as a uh, deterrent, lo salan niblaso al you cannot allow his body to stay overnight. Ultimately speaking, he's a human being and he deserves respect. And what is considered to be the act of final respect, cover by your mahu that you bury him. Now, what's fascinating is that it ends up being that this person is not hanging for that long. Because the capital, the decree and the execution has to all happen during the day. So it ends up that he's really only hanging for usually a matter of minutes. But still, there's an obligation to bury him. That there is a, 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 a very important mitzvah to bury him. And the question is why, right? Why, why is the Torah so insistent on, on, on burying him? Think about it. We have this guy, he committed murder, he did some other sin. And imagine we did, you know, what they used to do in the olden days, they put somebody on a stake or in one of those cages, right? where the body, which they used to do to pirates or whatever, where the body is swinging. Imagine the message that says. But the Torah is saying is that we cannot, this is runs. the commentary is explaining that this, it, for us to hang him and defile his corpse runs counter to the entire message of what the Torah is about. What the Torah teaches us about a human being is that a human being is divine and sacred. And even after the soul leaves, the body, which was the vehicle for the soul and the partner of the soul, is something which deserves respect and to go back to where it came from. And if we don't have that perspective on the power and the divinity and the sacredness of a human being, right, then we are undermining the very tenet of what the Torah is about, which is about the power of of a human being. So therefore, we want to send the message that even this person who acted the worst still has an inherent holiness that we can't ignore. And therefore, we have to bury him properly. All right, we're going to stop here. Um, if you have any questions or whatever, please ask. Otherwise, we will we will continue, hopefully, hopefully next week even, we'll see.